Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Establish, brought to you by Shake Up the Establishment. We are a youth-run, nonpartisan, community-centered nonprofit that focuses on translating knowledge within various topics of climate justice to make this information more accessible to those living in what is currently Canada. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that we have the privilege of living, working, and thriving upon land that Indigenous peoples have lived and cared for and continue to do so since time immemorial. We acknowledge that our address resides on Treaty 3 land, which is the territory of the Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabeweke, Attawandarok, Mississaugas, and Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. This episode is part of a larger project called Voices of the Greenbelt, consisting of five podcast episodes, a mini-documentary, and visual workshops. This project has been supported by the Greenbelt Foundation. The Greenbelt Foundation's grant and research activities are made possible by the generous support of the government of Ontario. Such support does not indicate endorsement by the government of Ontario of the contents of this material. My name is Atreyu Lewis, I use they-he pronouns, and I'm a two-spirit, transmasculine, non-binary, mixed indigenous, and racialized youth. I grew up in Toronto, and I'm now currently situated in Jojage, also known as Montreal, Quebec. I'm a public speaker, project manager, and grassroots leader with BIPOC organizations, as well as taking part in independent research on decolonizing methodologies, epistemologies, and promoting intersectionality and harm reduction. In today's episode, we will be speaking about case studies highlighting Indigenous leadership and stewardship in the Greenbelt region and the surrounding area. Our first guest is Serena Mendesville, a Six Nations land defender. So I know that you have so much community connections, so I first wanted to ask you, maybe can you tell us what does land-based, water-based knowledge, ancestral knowledge mean to you? For sure, that's a great question. And personally, I think the knowledges we gain from the lands and waters are, are very sacred to us and have actually helped continue our nation's relationships to the places we come from. And so these knowledges that have been passed down generation to generation Uh, have now been able to uphold our laws and our languages with through the practicing of our traditional ways of knowing. And so having our ancestral knowledge uh, provides us with the ability to live out our original instructions to the land and to each other. And so we're able to be who we are because we have this knowledge. And so I think that's why it's so important when talking about climate change or environmental protection is that we've been experiencing climate change since settlers first came here. And so when we're experiencing these changes to the climate, we're also experiencing changes to our laws, to our languages, to the ways we interact with the world around us. And and it actually impacts us more than people really understand. And so that's why I think upholding these knowledges and continuing the relationships, learning from them is so important. Definitely. I feel like a lot of people kind of, um, I don't know, they see it as a story rather than like a lived experience, I think. And that Um, relationship that we are currently within, right? And, And how connected we are to our surroundings. It's People don't understand that relationship. And then it really starts when people start to learn of that, it starts to change their mind and understand why this work is so important, right? Literally, there tends to be a lot of like mystifying of it. I feel like that's something that people don't know when we talk about ancestral stories or ancestral just like teachings in general. Um, even if they are stories, they have meaning and they have values. And it's it's so much deeper than that. I feel like at the university level, I'm at McGill University, they don't really, um, they tend to do the same. They're like, oh yeah, look at these stories, read these like, read these laws. And I feel like it really tries to put us in the past when that's just not 
how it is. I've done so much in the, like in one year, really trying to reconnect with communities now that I'm in Montreal. Um, and I'm not getting graded on that. <laughs> and no. that's something I'm not getting graded on and that you're not getting graded on, but it's, it's doing way more, I think, to be honest. <laughs> doing way more for our communities and for ourselves, right? And I think that's like where the basis of all our knowledge comes from is those relationships. And so we just need to keep connecting um, to each other and to the land. Definitely. So I guess what I want to ask you next is how much do these um, these teachings, how much does it contribute to like your lived experiences with indigeneity? So I think our knowledges contribute to my lived experiences as a Haudenosaunee person, uh, because that's what I've grown up to know as holding our identities and to be able to be Haudenosaunee as people understand my relationship to the land and to the places that my ancestors had come from. And so, um, something that I have especially been connected to through like understanding my own identity as a Haudenosaunee person was the language and and how through the language I was able to understand my my the relational worldview and my relationship to the rest of the creation because when you're speaking in the language and I, I just have very beginner my mom speaks um you're always in relation to something else. It's you and them, them and you, uh, me and you, uh, me and them. Like we're constantly talking within these relational worldviews. And I think that's what's really important is it's really given me the understanding of um, that that relationship to the land and who we are has been coming um from those knowledges and it's the basis of our identities as Ungwehui. So to me, our knowledges and who we are as Ungwehui is intimately connected to each other and to the land and it and it provides me with a grounding to understand my place and the rest of creation and my relationships to the rest of human and non-human kin. Uh, because I I really think when we're born into such a colonized world that can be so skewed to to be able to understand those relationships and to be able just to under even understand life and uh, this gift we have been given. So it, it helps ground me in who I am and where I come from. And, and I think that has been a journey in itself, but it has also been so fulfilling in the sense that I I'm able to really understand and to know what it means to be Haudenosaunee and what it means to come from the lands I do and, and to be a sovereign person. I love that. Um, I think for me, like as an Anishinaabe um, trans masculine non-binary person, I feel like I'm really trying to um, incorporate, like, I feel like for me, I feel like a lot of communities are doing a lot of great work, but I feel like some of the stories it's like, I wish there was more of like more kind of two-spirit stories. I wish there was like, I wish we could find that. I feel like I'm using university and, and I'm engaging in community. That's kind of my goal is like really amplifying that, um, those different lived experiences because growing up, I didn't really get to hear from like a two-spirit trans indigenous person at all. Um, I didn't get to really understand what that looked like in the set the colonial era at all. Just like really grounding myself in that. And, um, even if you're an urban native, even if you're not, like it's, you can still definitely do that. These are our lands, right? Like, and so I think that's really important to be thinking past the boundaries too of what territory is and, and really defining it for ourselves and, and 
and that upholding that within you especially like around here we have so many urban areas on the track but they're still all native land and when we have so many Ungwehue who are all along these territories and and living they're living indigenously because there's no other way they can live and these are their lived experiences so it is really a journey though of like coming being able to find your place within all of this like very colonized world and and to try and find meaning out of that no literally I keep thinking that all the time let me have also been thinking of is like street name for some reason every time I'm in Toronto or Montreal I've noticed a lot of street names I'm like that's colonizer shit <laughs> that really is the settler um exploitation and, and like invasion I love the word settler invasion I learned that <laughs> it's an invasion it's like, an invasion and they're still invading to this day exactly like i love that how i feel like definitely people need to understand that like settlers when they think of settler they shouldn't just think of like oh these people who came in on ships settlers are like still like politicians just because they changed face they changed profession they changed that doesn't mean they're not a settler anymore um I've heard this before. It's like, oh, but my ancestors have been here for, for like hundreds of years. I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> These are settler governments. These are settler, settler industries. Like, this mm-hmm. is not from Indigenous to here. <laughs> no, literally, it's it's so frustrating. It's like, if Indigenous peoples hadn't like interacted in anything, like they would, settlers would not have survived here at all. It's just so like. People just don't get it. No, just, and that's why they continue to oppress us because that was the only way that they were going to gain any power over these countries. Literally, like people forget that the fur trade was the main reason why a lot of settlers had their settlements. Like they had their own like houses and stuff like that because they chose to live in proximity and they chose to exploit that. It wasn't uncommon for like for indigenous peoples to interact with settlers. Um, and also it wasn't this whole new thing that happened, like settler colonialism, like it was happening in different areas of the world and like different regions. Mm-hmm. Um, even before like 1492, like as early as like the Vikings, it's like, that's, that's just how it has been with like people back in Europe. I feel like I'm, I'm trying to really incorporate like indigenous sources. Every time I see like a white settler journal and I'm like, I want to burn it. <laughs> I want to burn it. I just want to find like actual indigenous sources and like oral history, like anything. Like honestly, the the weaponizing of written is so severe. Even today, when we look at urbanization, we look at like development stuff, or we look at um, you know, we just we just look at general like uh, government stuff. And all our knowledge is there and all our solutions are within those knowledges. So I think that's what is so painful for us as Indigenous peoples is because we have those answers and and it's just been within these processes that our knowledge has been so taken advantage of. They've tried to disconnect us from the way we think. So that's why it's so important to be able to bring it back within to our daily lives and bring it back into our practices and and to exert those rights even to our own knowledges, right? Because that's the root of everything. That's the root of the relationship. That's the root of our well-being. Absolutely. Um, the Assembly of First Nations defined traditional knowledge as collective knowledge of traditions passed down through generations. 
um, and that traditional eco ecological knowledge to EK is like a study of scientific stuff. So roots, plants, anything of like biodiversity that indigenous peoples have um, like used over the years, they've used in their like um, in food and resources and like, and that cycle of giving back and then taking from with ancestral um, ancestral ways, ancestral mindsets. Um, I don't know. I feel like I agree with the definition, but I feel like I don't think it's just traditional. I think it's very, it's like an ongoing process, even though it's from generations and generations, I think to kind of label it all as just traditional. I think it's not, it's kind of an injustice to what's happening now and how people are using it now, in my opinion. <laughs> And like we defy those temp those like colonial temporalities of time, right? Like uh, how we look at time is not within this linear structure. It is, but it, like something that is fluid and continuous, and we're able to use over time and develop and 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 I think that's important as well, right? Is that how we think about the world is so just differently structured? <laughs> it really is. Like it's just I I learned this in history too how like Europeans, colonizers, they want to put it all in like this simplified linear timeline, this chronological timeline. Um, they want to include the most tragedies, the most big events in this one historical field. But that's, um, that's not history. It's not full history. It's just the history that a certain people in power or just a certain people wanted to portray it is. And, 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 and I think that's why we need to be protecting our knowledge so strongly is because that's like the one thing that is continue continuing our nations along. And so it's very vital to our identities. Yeah. And that's what grassroots is. I think that's what the, so what's so important about grassroots um, just like in general, grassroots communities, grassroots organizations, they kind of protect that knowledge. They help communities like protect that and, utilize that knowledge that is not being interrupted by capitalism, imperialism, colonialism. Um, and that's why I really like, even just my own, like I'm trying to get more grassroots in everything, like in getting resources, in activism, in all these type of things, um, because I realize that I have autonomy, that I have agency. And that's what a lot of indigenous peoples we've known for so long. It's exactly like this has been going on. We've been resisting, we've been saying no. They've just used different tactics to silence our voices, but I don't think we can be silenced any longer. And I think we've been get learning skills within their systems and on our own um, to be able to combat their settler invasion. <laughs> no, literally, it's something you've seen in like all racialized communities. It's just, we've, we've been doing this. Um, and speaking of that, you know, land defense, I have not personally done a lot of land defense work. I've supported a lot of it. I've been supporting, I've been doing like rallies, fundraising for it. Um, but definitely like out West and like in the States with line three and Dakota pipeline, the, some of the major ones and just general, um, they definitely have a lot of challenges. Um, maybe cause I know you've done a lot of land defense work as well. Like you've helped out with that more in the field um can you maybe describe some of the challenges you or your peers have faced when it comes to stewardship a hundred percent um so like just touching even on the last question a lot of people are um 
like disconnect, not fully disconnected, but our, our knowledge has been taken away. And so we're not necessarily, it's not easily accessible. So we don't always sometimes have that knowledge to be guiding us within these efforts all the time. But I, so I think the movements that really ground within our knowledges of, of even like agricultural practices and stewarding the land and being on the water or learning our languages is so vital to complement these types of resistance. And so I've been exposed to community organizing since I was little with my mom in Six Nations. Uh, she was into that when I was younger, into uh, building youth capacity and using our voices and reclaiming her identity and language. And so um, that's been something kind of instilled with me since I was like six or seven. Uh, but when I really started to begin looking critically at land governance and energy governance and organizing within climate justice, when we're unable to govern our own lands and live on them the way we were meant to, this is severely impacting our health and identity as Unguihui. And it therefore feels like there's no other answer or way than to be on the front line in order to be taken seriously by the Crown because we're already facing so many barriers within like legal support or political negotiating. Well, then this happens and we're on the front lines and people are sacrificing their lives, the government continues to use their dispossessive tactics and place injunctions on these sites of contention and protection because this is the only way they're able to force Indigenous peoples from doing something they don't want us to do in order to protect their interest of property. So it makes it really difficult to keep the longevity of the work because the system is taking rights away of so many land defenders and isolating those fighting back. And so I've been working for over a year now with Protect the Track and, and Protect the Track now is a faction out of 1492 Lambac Lane um, as, an, as, a, as a furthering of um, what they were doing that work, protecting Mackenzie Meadows. That portion of defense is, is done in, in the sense of actually having to protect these positions, but then it's they act like it's an isolated situation when it's not. So there needs to be something further. And so with Protect the Track, that it's a Haudenosaunee-led project, we're trying to continue the legacy and the work of what land defenders are doing because they can't keep putting their lives on the front line when they're being arrested and they're being placed in junctions and they're, they're being stripped of their rights. And so we want to be furthering these into different sectors of research and policy development and community engagement because it needs to be community led. Absolutely. Um, thank you for sharing. I think for me, when you brought up a lot of like the, uh, yeah, like the autonomy, it's really hard to get that autonomy to fully practice stewardship um, because in just little things is like getting a house or like a building. It's like, how do you, how do you build that without help of like colonial companies or like, how do you, um, with like, yeah, having your car sit out there all the time, it's really difficult to do that. Um, and it's, it's very, it, it can be very frustrating and also capacity too. A lot of people don't understand that mental health is so important in this stuff and knowing capacity and like taking breaks. Oh my need. gosh. It's, I think that's a large project is like, our people are being attacked by state police and state governments and it's traumatic what is going on and there isn't the right supports that will help with mental emotional spiritual physical well-being 
And so how can these people continue to keep putting their lives on the line? Um, and like, it, 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 it can get very difficult being away from family, being in the cold a lot of the time, um, trying to work together when it's so much stuff that's being like held pressure on people's shoulders and and having it's a lot of teamwork and kinship and and that can be a lot because there's so many high emotions and there's so many people who come from with their own different backgrounds and we all have our own trauma in our own family legacies of things that we've been trying to work through and we're all severely living within these colonized worlds and so we've come with these with everyone comes with baggage I know I do and and we have to navigate through that to try and create something good but it can be really hard sometimes and and it's so amazing to see this type of work being done when we're when all everyone is still dealing with their own personal lives and their own personal struggles and and to still create something so beautiful and to work together because I think that's really the only thing that will be able to heal us at the end of the day and it's healing in itself but it can also bring so much um pressure and hardship into lives and and I've definitely seen that over the past year working in um, closely with Lambac and and with Protect the Track and different organizing Grand Back, the different different organizing groups in the community because it's a lot and and the pressure of knowing that if we don't do this kind of work that our lands, our territories, our sovereign right to be who we are is going to be slowly taken away. I see the developments all around me and I constantly have anxiety about it. And and it honestly feels like I can't do enough because it's like we only have so much power and so much people to be able to go and exert over the territory, right? And so we come into that of being like, the only way anyone will ever take us seriously is through frontline work. And that's, I think the struggle a lot for me, I'll sit thinking about is like the only way I'm going to be able to stop this, what's going on is to actually go and like tie myself to the tree. And and it's true though. And, and that keeps so many, why it keeps so many people engaged and still fighting, even when it becomes exhausting, because there's no other answer of what to do. We just have to keep going. Literally, for me, it's like the Haudenosaunee, the Six Nations of the Grand River. That democracy is the oldest fucking democracy ever recorded. Like, that's the big guns. When you think of the Six Nations, like Haudenosaunee Confederacy, they've been doing that for centuries. Like, the first ever treaty documents were with, a lot of them, with the Haudenosaunee, were with that confederacy. Um, And I've also, I did like a paper on it in school too. It's like, this is, this is the real deal. So no one can tell me that like, oh, this is just some new modern socialism. No, it's not. <laughs> it is not. It is the blueprint. It is the blueprint. You need to see it as the blueprint and not just um, a poster calling when it's not. And it's, it's, it's so frustrating because people don't see it as a government. They just see it as, and I feel like that's also what neoliberalism is, right? That's what the government tries to portray that anybody who strays outside of, uh, their way, their conservative, 
authoritarian ways, they paint those people as socialists. And I feel like that's where it comes like the diversity. It's like, I see, when I see the movement thriving, I see everybody in every system fighting against it and healthcare and education and frontline work. Um, it's really hard to do that. It is very difficult as someone who's both in university and in the community. Um, but I think with the right resources, with the right help, the mental health um, priorities, with the right um, community understanding and the restorative justice and all of that, it can actually happen, I think. Um, and so I'll ask you this next question, which I think we already touched over. Maybe how can we meaning, meaningfully engage in the processes of decolonization to further decentralize settler colonialism um, and to better um, protect land and water? I know that this is easier said than done, but I know that decolonization is very important for land back work. No, definitely. So it it sounds simple to me, <laughs> but yeah. really it's just listening to indigenous peoples and what they want and engaging with their systems and We've been engaging with settler systems for so long. It, it honestly makes sense for others to start listening to us and, and letting us be sovereign and rule and govern ourselves through our traditional systems and governance, because exactly what I said before, we have our solutions. We just need to be acknowledged as such and to be able to make our own sovereign decisions without crown or government influence, because we just want to be able to steward the land and we can't fully ever decolonize or be anti-colonial without land back without gaining the control and the governance of that relationship because it's not necessarily owning the land it's being able to harbor the relationship that we've always wanted to with the land like our ancestors have always had so we cannot get this land back though without the exertion of our sovereign right to govern ourselves through um our traditional systems and we have our chiefs we have our clan mothers we have our clans and our our longhouse system and i think that it's exerting those rights and and having the larger mainstream also support that um because from a grassroots perspective a lot of this work around land defense is unpaid it's a it's really comes out of building a bunch of those relationships and so we're able to find support in manpower funding um, and other avenues through building those relationships because land defense is completely grassroots and so we always can use money we can always use resources we can always use people and I think having those type having people outside of our communities also be supporting our right to self-govern is just as important because this is the direction we need to be going. They need to be listening to us. They need to be following us. We're not following them anymore. These are our lands. You follow our rules and, and you harbor those relationships to the land um, like we intend to. So I think that's really it. To me, in my head, I'm like, it's just so simple, but it it's like the, it is so simple, but it's like the most transformational it's decolonization and I just like it's the most I can't even in like this process is just something else like that there's nothing in the world like this and and there's so many factions and so much to every portion of being able to shed the structures that we've been born into unfortunately and so 
it's about questioning the structures we're in. It's about supporting outside alternative worldviews and thinking and, and listening to others. And people find, like, I find people have just become so, they've had had to adapt to this level of government and, and colonial structure and economy and, and money and profit and property. And it's just like, it's just the way it is. They always say it's just the way it is. And to me, like, it is not just the way it is. We have to radically reimagine and rethink the world around us and create futures that encapsulate our own worldviews. And I don't think that is so far off, right? I think there's so many possibilities and potential to create a world like the way we imagine. And so I think it's just having the right people, building community, building relationships. We, I always say this, but I feel like how many people don't talk to their neighbors? And I think that's important because we've lost that community relationship building and looking at us as a collective and not individuals. And, and we are all a collective, even Indigenous and non-Indigenous people on this land. We've become a collective. And I know when I'm fighting for my peoples, I'm also fighting for you. And I'm also fighting for my Black community. I'm also fighting for so many other peoples and their rights and I think that's the kind of thinking we need because even within like looking at traditional government's framework, we made deals with many black communities that came out of the slavery that they would have land along our track. Their communities would have places to be. This is what we can work towards. And, 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 and this is what we've always been, we've always had these solutions. And so it's just being able to actually enact them and have the power to do that on these lands. And we have to stand up to Canada in any way we can. We have to stand up to these governments. We have to stand up to these industries. If that's on the front line, if that's in the academy, if that's in policy, if that's in any sector you can. My mom works in child welfare, and I know that's what she works towards every day and, and trying to change and push away their boundaries and make our own systems and of protection and stewardship and relationships. It's it's about pushing the these boundaries that have been restricting us for so long. And I think everyone can do it. I think we, and I think it really all starts with building those relationships and learning from each other. Absolutely. Totally. I think for me, like, it's just, it's so important to like understand communities and our neighbors and like how, even though it does affect everyone, but I feel like, Definitely the, like, building of Indigenous communities is something that's so, like, I think that is the forefront of, like, decolonization. We first have to really build these communities from the ground up, using ancestral stuff, using that knowledge, but also, like, incorporating lived experiences and how we can understand everyone's experiences in the settler colonial era, because mm -hmm. this is what we are really living through. When we think of land back, they don't want to face the future that Indigenous peoples are resisting and they're revitalizing their sovereignty. And my definition personally of land back from obviously from other like people like indigenous professors and stuff, I think it's res resistance, resurgence, revitalization. I think that's like resistance towards what's happening, the invasion, resurgence of our sovereignty, of our governance, and then revitalization of our traditions, of our practices. I think it's 
all of those combined is really what will bring land back. Our next guest, Sage Goodleaf, is a Gonagahage Mohawk environmentalist and activist who attended the COP26 summit and represents res and academic indigenous youth. Maybe just what are some of the ways that allies can help support indigenous stewardship efforts, maybe? Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, this is a big like question I get asked often, actually, and it's making it's stepping back from their current position and making room for indigenous voices. And what that means to me, I guess in particular, is opening up these colonial institutions in a broader sense and inviting more indigenous voices, not only to listen, but to be heard and to create action because you can listen, but have no action. And that's just, what does that do, right? And it's been so evident in time, like even attending the, conference there was space for us and there needs to be space at the united nation level there are a lot of um strong speakers who attend from the Haudenosaunee confederacy who go like kevin deer and um a great advocate for this and he was guiding us throughout the entire thing even though he wasn't able to attend we zoom him right <laughs> but um I think it's important for allies to create these spaces and to do the heavy lifting that indigenous people cannot do in the sense, not in the sense that they're unable to do in the sense that their voice will not be heard until it's said by a colonizer. Um, it's, it's not in the sense of echoing, it's in the sense of just opening that path up, opening the door for them, for their voice to be heard. Because if you, think about even translating our language into English, we're already diluting that teaching. It should be coming from the source itself, right? And it's stronger that way. So inviting indigenous people into these places, having their voices heard and listened to and creating action from that. And with the action, allowing them to lead it from their traditional perspective and protocol. Don't put your settler perspective and saying, this is how it should go. No, listen to that because it's gonna be wrong. <laughs> So it's, yeah, so that's what I think. I don't know, maybe I could think of something better to say. <laughs> no, you're all good. I guess just one thing I thought of, like you hear about this all the time, right? The government's trying to have specific conservation like for uh, certain nature areas and um, they do it very diplomatically. They do it very like kind of in the bureaucracy. Um, it's very like, I feel like they do it like with tourism and a lot of that stuff. Um, even though, yes, it's protecting wildlife, definitely needs to incorporate and just like have indigenous peoples like a part of the whole process. They can't just really declare like, okay, we're gonna have this conservation plan um, and then not even consider the territories they're on. Maybe mm -hmm. I guess one thing I would ask is um, how could uh, like the Greenbelt Foundation, like things like that, how can they, um, how can they incorporate indigenous peoples into that? Because that should be like first priority <laughs> before anything else, you know? Yeah, I think it's really important for in these initiatives to protecting these traditional lands, right? Because it is protected land is to go back to which nation its custodians are from and going to that traditional protocol and then having a nation to nation discussion on what they should do. Then later on consulting the federal and provincial colonial governments, right? They should be the last ones at the table, <laughs> to be honest. It's our traditional lands and we're thinking seven generations ahead when they're thinking, how do we make profit? It doesn't make sense really, right? And where's this profit going? It's surely not going to indigenous communities because we still don't have clean drinking water. So it's 
we need to think about how we're going about into these protecting these lands from a colonial perspective because that's what they're doing right they're they're taking that ideology they have on how to protect but they don't know what that means because they're thinking about profit that money cloud is always clouding their minds whereas we are thinking about how do we keep our lands and tradition alive for the next generation to learn from we're thinking teaching wise not money wise and i think it's important to keep that differential ideology there because Right, like if you think about nation to nation protocol, it's much more significant than it is with federal government because we keep our nation to nation set, like we keep it bound to us. They, it's so evident that they don't, <laughs> you know, like colonial governments do not keep that there. <laughs> no, literally, it's it's just something within um, the green belt because I've done obviously research about it, like for this project, and it's it is very interesting. I think it does. Um, like at least in it does conserve those spaces, but definitely the problem is in the profit and the money. I think it's mm-hmm. too much. It's focusing too much on seeing wildlife and nature as um, economic conservation. And like you said, not actual real wildlife conservation. And I just think that's something that the green belt could definitely, um, definitely improve on. Um, I mean, I'm glad that they're able to, um, contribute, like help uh, youth like shake up the establishment, um, do these type of projects, but definitely incorporating like Six Nations, Mississaugas of the Credit, these nations must be involved in every single one of those, um, whatever plans or programs they have, because it is it is our territory. It is um, Indigenous, Algonquin, Anishinaabe, Ganagahagi territory. It's like, even just simple as like going to nativeland.ca and you like here. <laughs> it just, this is, this is how it is i guess just to really finish off but i feel like i feel like the whole treaty making process needs to change like there's treaties that were made like that are treaties but not considered quote-unquote treaties because they don't they're not on paper like there's so many wampum belts and so many council fires that have happened in history that aren't considered real treaties and that's something like so simple that the ontario government or like greenbelt foundation could even be thinking about because if they want to like really actually protect the land and protect the natural world, then they should be really doing that. Thank you, Sage and Serena, for sharing your insightful perspectives with us on stewardship and conservation efforts. If you like what you hear, check out our work at Shake Up the Establishment. You can find us on our website or Instagram to continue learning about important topics like environmental stewardship, social justice issues, and political accountability. That's S-H-A-K-E-U-P-T-H-E estab dot org and find us under the same name on Instagram. To learn more about the Greenbelt, visit the Greenbelt Foundation online.